Welcome to OB-GYN Time, a Cleveland Clinic podcast covering all things obstetrics and gynecology. These podcast episodes are intended to help you better understand your health, leaving you feeling empowered to live your best. We hope you enjoy today's episode. everyone, I'm your host, Dr. Erica Newlin. Welcome to our fourth episode of OB-GYN Time. During this season, we are focusing on topics related to infertility. On this episode, I'd like to welcome Dr. Scott Lundy and Dr. Sarah Vidge, who will be talking to us about male infertility. Dr. Vidge and Dr. Lundy, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Can you tell us a little about your role in the Cleveland Clinic and a little about your background? Absolutely. Thanks so much for having us. So my name is Sarah Vidge. I am a urologist specializing in male infertility and men's health. I'm the center director for our male fertility center, which lies within the department of urology at the Cleveland Clinic. And my name is Scott Lundy, and I'm also a reproductive urologist. And my primary role is in both acting as a clinician and reproductive microsurgeon, but also as a researcher and administrator for our andrology lab in providing cutting-edge research, but then also semen analysis testing for our department. Great. As we discussed in previous podcasts, usually we recommend starting an infertility workup if a couple has been attempting pregnancy for a year or after six months if the female partner is over 35 years old. When would you recommend someone be seen early in their journey to conception or pregnancy? I think that's a great question, and I think it depends on the couple, but anytime there's significant concern or an emotional burden about this process that weighs heavily on the couple, that's a perfectly good reason to come in and see us and be evaluated, because we can either provide reassurance or we can provide the expertise that would suggest further testing is necessary. I think also if a man has a history of testicle cancer or chemotherapy or has other major medical problems, then that would prompt a earlier workup than usual because the risk of finding something is higher. And what can someone expect at their first visit with a male infertility specialist? Sure. So a big part of what we do is just history taking. So we ask a lot of questions. There's a lot of individual risk factors for infertility in a male. So a lot of history taking. And then we will do a brief exam. It is a genital exam. And then we typically will order some basic tests always included in that will be a semen test. And then depending on the patient's individual story, there may be some additional blood work or imaging required. And can you tell us what exactly you're looking for in the semen analysis and what the components of a semen analysis would be? The semen testing is actually a highly complex test that has a number of different parameters that are important to us. The main idea is to identify how many sperm are present that could be causing a pregnancy. And pregnancies are a game of odds. And so the more modal sperm there are, the better chances of success from the male side. So we look at the concentration of sperm and how many sperm are present in the sample, the total volume of semen. We take a look at the motility and how the sperm are swimming and how efficient they are at swimming. And we also take a look at the shape of those sperm to see if they look normal or abnormal. And then we put all these values together and we determine whether the semen analysis looks to be mostly normal or mostly abnormal, taking into account that there may be one or two parameters that are abnormal, but overall things might be reassuring. 
And I think my patients' partners are always happy to hear that they can collect at home and don't have to go into the clinic. That's correct. Sometimes. So we prefer to examine the specimen within about 30 minutes because motility changes over time quickly. And we also like these specimens to stay at body temperature because that's how they would normally work in the female reproductive tract. So if a man can provide a specimen within 30 minutes in a sterile fashion at home and keep it warm, then that's perfectly appropriate. But if he and his partner live far away, then we recommend they come in and provide a specimen in the lab to give us the most accurate results. Perfect. That's super helpful. In addition to a semen analysis, what kind of blood work might be helpful? Sure. So depending on the patient's history, so some of the questions I mentioned that we might ask them about about their health history and social history, we occasionally will check blood work. It's typically going to be a hormone profile. So we're checking testosterone along with a few other hormones. Testosterone, as many people probably know, is produced by the testicles. So it gives us another sort of measure of testicular function. And having a normal testosterone level is important for normal sperm production and just a man's overall well-being. One of the other categories of blood testing that we offer often do for a subset of men with male infertility is genetic testing. Now this is not genetic testing in the sense of understanding all of the genes throughout all of the chromosomes and the man's genetic makeup, but rather to look for key known factors that can cause significant male infertility. Common examples would be looking for Klinefelters, which is the addition of an extra chromosome, for example or a Y chromosome microdeletion, which is a small piece of the Y chromosome that's missing that plays key roles in fertility. And so when a man comes in with very low or zero sperm counts, we often check these genetic tests because the outcome of those tests might change what we recommend for their treatment. Perfect. And then what kind of imaging might be ordered? What imaging might be helpful in a patient? So typically in the routine evaluation, we do not rely on imaging. Our physical exam, just because of where the testicles sit in the body, is actually very reliable for us to make several diagnoses and assess their, even their fertility potential just based on testicular size. So there are certain scenarios where we do rely on imaging. A scrotal ultrasound is probably the most common imaging modality that we use. It's a pretty cheap and effective study to tell us about testicular anatomy if our physical exam is limited just due to a patient's body habitus. Perfect. And are there any medications that might harm fertility or sperm production that a patient might want to consider if they're trying to conceive? Yeah, there are a number of different medications that we look for as potential red flags. Things like finasteride, for example, or Propecia, which some men use for hair growth or for prostate issues can cause fertility issues. Certainly some medications for high blood pressure or medications for Psychiatric illnesses can also cause problems. And then finally, chemotherapy is another big red flag for us that could predispose a man to having worse fertility. So we go through the medication list and the medication history to look for this. And we pay particular attention to those agents that we know cause problems. And one of the more common ones that we identify after some questioning is testosterone treatment, which causes significant impairment of sperm production. And that's something we have to address and talk about in clinic. What about any lifestyle changes or things you recommend avoiding when trying to conceive? So generally what I tell my patients is that behaviors that are 
good for your overall health, like things that we all know, regular exercise, stress reduction, eating a balanced diet, maintaining a normal weight are going to be good for fertility. So I try to just kind of have them think big picture. In terms of, you know, things you might see in the lay press, hot tubs, tight underwear, things like that. Heat is not good for sperm, so prolonged heat exposure. So certainly if they're sitting in a hot tub every day for 10 minutes, that is an activity I would have them just put on hold. Underwear tightness, that really has not been proven. I tell people wear what's comfortable for them. If the underwear is so tight it's uncomfortable, then <laughs> it's probably not optimal. Right. But, you know, cell phone in your pocket, again, data not great on that. Laptops can get pretty hot. So people who work from home nowadays, which is common, you know, putting your laptop on your lap for several hours a day is not optimal. But again, it's all about prolonged heat exposure. Okay. And then what about things like alcohol use or any other drug use? So cigarettes we know are not good. Marijuana, the jury is sort of still out. My interpretation of the data we do have is sort of mild to moderate use is acceptable, but you know, daily heavy use is probably not optimal. And the same thing's probably true for alcohol. So mild to moderate use is acceptable. Heavy use, probably not optimal for sperm production. Again, sort of some common sense in what you'd apply to your, your health overall. Sure. And then on the other side, are there any supplements or things that people can take that has been shown to boost fertility in men? There is some data to suggest that antioxidants can help. So things like CoQ10, for example, can provide some benefit. This is really just a sliver of benefit, though. And so I tell my patients that if they want to throw the kitchen sink at the problem, then the antioxidants can provide some benefit, but this is only going to be a small benefit. There are other supplements that can potentially help too, and there's some emerging data for things like omega-3 fatty acids. But in general, these are really minor benefits in the overall grand scheme of things and are certainly appropriate to take, but also certainly appropriate to not take. And the outcomes likely are not terribly different. And then I've heard a lot about things like Clomid for men. We use it quite frequently in women to boost fertility. It seems like the data is still out. What are your thoughts on Clomid? I think Clomid is a good medication for male fertility. It's been, as you know, prescribed for female fertility and was first approved back in the 70s. And we've used it for men for decades now. The data suggests that in about half of the men we treat with Clomid, there is an improvement in sperm parameters. There is a small percentage of men that worsen with Clomid. And so we use this sparingly and appropriately. But if there's little suggestion that the Clomid treatment will get them to their end goal, whether it's spontaneous pregnancy or moving away from IVF towards other techniques like intrauterine insemination, then Clomid may not be the right choice. It's also difficult to get right now because the generic manufacturers have stopped making it. And mm. so we've started to rely on other medications like anastrozole or pursue other treatment options. And then on the topic, you mentioned IVF. What kinds of things are you usually talking with patients about when considering assisted reproductive therapy? Sure. So we're very fortunate to have assisted reproductive therapy for patients because we can't get all of our male patients into a fertility range that allows for natural conception. And even some who are completely normal still can't get pregnant. So there's really sort of two buckets for assisted reproduction. IVF, as Dr. Lundy mentioned, stands for in vitro fertilization. It's a highly complex process where the female undergoes stimulation to retrieve eggs and the sperm are, in many labs, are injected directly into the eggs. It's a pretty expensive 
expensive process for many patients. Insurance coverage is not great, but it is highly effective. And so our patients whose sperm counts are really quite low that we can't improve some of the methods we've talked about, we will send them on for in vitro fertilization. And then our patients that are sort of in the middle range, they're low, but they may still have many million sperm. They can try what's called intrauterine insemination, as Dr. Lundy mentioned. People hear about it as like the turkey baster. It's essentially like a pap smear for a female where the semen specimen is spun down into a smaller volume and placed into the uterus, bypassing the cervix. And that can help couples get pregnant who do have reasonable amounts of sperm. And then could you briefly describe when someone may want to consider sperm preservation and what that process involves? So for patients with systemic illness that has no end in sight or who need chemotherapy that can impair fertility, common examples would be a malignancy or a cancer that requires chemotherapy. Those patients might benefit from fertility preservation because in some of those patients, their fertility may never recover. In many cases it will, but without knowing ahead of time, without a crystal ball, it's nice to have a specimen in the bank, so to speak, so that we can use that specimen for things like IVF if fertility doesn't recover. So for any reproductive age man undergoing certain types of chemotherapy that are known to harm the testicle and its function, we recommend a discussion about fertility preservation. Also for young prepubertal children who don't have the opportunity to generate a semen specimen because they're not of the correct age. In those patients, we do offer a research protocol where we preserve some of their testicular tissue in hopes that science will catch up and will allow us to provide fertility options for them in the future. Now for semen preservation, the process is quite simple. The man comes into the lab and provides a specimen as though it were a normal semen test. And then the lab takes those sperm and counts them and then freezes them and then thaws a small amount to make sure that they survived the freeze and gives us a report so that we can assess whether the sample is good enough for IVF or IUI. For the testicle tissue cryopreservation, this requires a surgery and requires more intensive work to process the specimen. And because we don't have any firm out put yet on what is a successful process because we don't have the science, it's a little more nebulous. But in general, cryopreservation for most patients is a straightforward process. There is a cost associated to it that's not covered by insurance, but it's not a burdensome process in most cases. Could you speak briefly as to fertility preservation in our transgender patients? Yeah, absolutely. This is a really important topic and something that we spend a great deal of time and energy in finding ways to optimize. Patients who are born with testicles but are transitioning, whether it be through hormone treatment or through surgical treatment in the transgender population, are at increased risk of fertility issues because many of these treatments will remove the gonadal tissue entirely. And so prior to starting either hormone therapy or certainly for bottom surgery, we often recommend a fertility evaluation and preservation if it's within the goals and desires of that particular patient. So we have a discussion that's much like our other fertility visits where we discuss the risk factors and then we offer the semen cryopreservation process to these patients in hopes that we can preserve fertility at least for future IVF cycles, if not for intrauterine insemination cycles. And then what else would you like patients to know before coming to see you in the office? I think our big message to our patients and to sort of the community is that 
fertility is a couple's problem. And I think historically it's been thought to be more of a, a woman's problem. And so couples are often going to their OB-GYNs first. And, and sometimes the male can be a little bit forgotten in the process. So I think just making sure that couples understand that both members of the couple can be evaluated. And, and we may not find anything on the male side, but certainly, you know, checking that box and, and making sure that they're as optimized as they can. And and part of the other, the reason we recommend that is you often hear at our sort of meetings that a, a semen analysis in a male's fertility is often a marker of their overall health. And so men with really poor semen parameters often have other comorbidities or disease processes that maybe they're not taking seriously or maybe they don't need, know that they have. And so Dr. Lundy and I really view our role as pretty important in the sense that we're getting access to these patients when they're young, when we can really optimize their diabetes, get them to stop smoking, get them to lose weight, and really improve their longevity, which is, in the end of the day, you know, what we all strive for. So just getting the word out there that we're here and that we're, you know, we're happy to see the males to help them. Anything you'd like to add? I think for me, this is an issue that, you know, if we don't talk about infertility as a society as much as we should we really don't talk about male infertility. And it becomes almost stigmatized because we as a society place so much burden on the male to provide offspring and generate offspring. It provides a great deal of their self-identity. And when a man is unable to conceive a child with his partner and feels that guilt of not having the ability to be a father, that really provides a lot of emotional burden to both the man and his partner and manifests itself in many different ways. And that includes, you know, psychiatric illnesses, that includes stress, that includes poor health habits and coping strategies that may not be appropriate. And so I think it's important to normalize this discussion and talk about how fertility is common and one in six couples go through this and half of those couples have a male factor or male component. And we should talk about that and we should normalize it and make it okay for guys to talk about these issues and talk about erection problems because their friends are going through it, whether we talk about it or not. And if we can amplify that message, then I think we can have a big improvement in men's health and in male reproductive health, and we can improve the outcomes for our patients. Are there any resources that you'd recommend for patients who are going through the stress of infertility as far as therapy or social media or anything that comes up frequently? There are some social media groups and there are some commercial organizations out there that are being run by people who have been through this. For example, there's one called Fertility IQ that provides information. The important part is to provide high quality information and to provide an, a forum for people to discuss this. And if I'm honest, I think those resources are more limited than they should be. And I would just add, I think many of them are geared towards women. Mm -hmm. And I think women certainly bear the burden and a lot of the stress, but it, it's just sort of different, I think, for the men. So we do have counselors that we'll refer patients to that seem like they're having, you know, really having a hard time. But there's a lot less sort of support on the male side. And that's something that as a field, we're trying to change. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Thank you very much. This has been great. Thank you for listening to this episode of OB-GYN Time. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe wherever you get your podcast or visit clevelandclinic.org slash OB-GYN Time.